0: And lesson seven today of nine, so we are closing in on the end of our series from self-help to God's help, let me mention some things by way of announcement. Those that are on our email list received an email from me about uh, two deaths uh, for folks in our church family, relatives, and uh, funeral arrangements. One is uh, Stephanie Muscat's father, passed away, and uh, this evening is the visitation and service, 4 to 6, at the uh, Varan Funeral Home in Allen Park, and then at 6 o'clock is the service. And then tomorrow, at the uh, Crane Funeral Home, uh, Lana Harris, daughter Mariah, and that will be from visitation 1 to 6, and the service at 6. I'll be doing that service at uh, 6 tomorrow. So be in prayer for these families, and if you're able to come to the uh, funeral home, I'm sure that would be an encouragement to to them. Tonight, men, is our second installment of Leadership Institute. So we had a good uh, number of guys uh, register and who were here last week, so we've gotten off to a good start. But those of you who may not have heard about that, forgot about it, have been meaning to sign up and didn't, Uh, We are just getting going so this would be a good time for you to jump in if you'd like to come tonight We would love to have you and if you'll just uh, let that be known at the information Center before you leave just give them your name and uh, we'll make sure we get a notebook to you and tonight You can just come and observe what we do and you'll get the ground rules uh, For as we go forward so that's tonight at six o'clock for the guys that are involved in leadership Institute and then we, this Tuesday at 7, we have the ladies' Christmas Advent, and that will be in this room. And today, ladies, is your final chance then, obviously, for you to register for that, so please do that at the Information Center before you leave. But we need some help setting up for that. That's going to take place in this room, which means we need to remove these uh, uh, chairs and uh, set up some tables in here and uh, then the chairs around those tables. So men, if any of you could hang around after we finish this session, then that would be of great help. Marcy Hunter is going to lead that. She'll be able to tell us where the the tables and all of that go. Uh, So she'll direct things, but we just need some uh, muscle to uh, help out with that. Our community groups are on break right now. We do those uh, in four six-week sessions throughout the year. And the last six-week session ended a couple of weeks ago. So this is a good time for anybody who has been thinking about being involved in one of our Sunday evening home groups to get involved in one of those. Give your name at the uh, Information Center and we'll get some information to you about that. And this coming Wednesday is the last... A session for our midweek program for this particular semester then we have the holiday break and we'll start that back up again in in January and then the last thing that I have is that I am not going to shake anybody's hand today i have not shaken any hands I've had to be rude to a few of you by not shaking your hand and told you why but uh, my daughter has been ill all week Annie has been sick all week she missed uh, almost the entire week of school And uh, Kim is with her now, taking her to the doctor. She's just got this uh, bug that a number of people have have had, I know, that's uh, going around. And uh, so I've been exposed to her. I feel fine uh, for the most part. (laughs) So we'll see where all that goes. But uh, just uh, know that I'm not trying to be rude, uh, but I just uh, will forego the handshake. And uh, in fact, uh, to do that, I will leave right after we are, are done here. And uh, the real reason that I'm leaving is I don't want to set up with the guys in this uh, this room. (laughs) So uh, sickness comes in handy for all kinds of stuff like that. All right, you have your notes in uh, session seven, lesson seven. And we've been looking at this chart for the big picture of how change occurs in our lives. And I think we have that chart, but... If I say chart, and I keep saying chart, a chart will appear. Look at that. And there are four major components to that chart, and they are on each page of your notes as well. But you see on the screen or in your notes that it begins with the the heat of life. And that's using some imagery from the prophet to Jeremiah talking about life in the the wilderness, life in the desert, life in the difficulties. And so all of us have our own forms of the heat of, of life. And it can be a relationship, it can be a particular physical malady, it can be financial struggles, it can be any number of things. But that's the situation I'm in, that's the circumstance I'm in. And we spent a couple of weeks looking at those varieties and the fact that what we all tend to do is to focus on the circumstance as the cause of our problems. And if you don't define the problem correctly, you won't define the solution correctly. And that's an incorrect diagnosis of what's actually happening with us. The problem biblically for us is not what is outside of us. It's not even ultimately what happens to us. It is what we bring to our circumstances and how we react to those circumstances. And that relates to the second thing on that chart, which is on the right, and that is the thorns that result in our lives. Because we bring hearts to the heat, to the circumstances, to the situations that interpret them uh, falsely, react to them, therefore, in an unhealthy, sinful way very often. And then we have the ill fruit of that, the thorns in our lives. And so you see at the root of that cactus that you have a a heart shaped root and it has a, a negative. That's bringing our sinful hearts to our situations. And the way we engage in those situations and react to them, and it creates that kind of ill fruit. So what is the solution to that? And the solution, biblically, is the the cross, it is, and, and Christ. And so that's why at the bottom of the chart you see that third component, and last week we began to look at what the cross provides for us that helps us now change the way that we react in our circumstances and act in our circumstances. And when the cross does its work, then it will issue forth in a different kind of heart. So you see the root on the left there of that uh, chart. uh, The root is a positive heart. It is a redeemed heart. It is a changed heart. And that changed heart then brings a different kind of fruit. Instead of the cactus, it brings forth a a fruit-bearing tree. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the second of the two lessons today on what the cross does, and then the final two weeks we will look at the fruit of that new heart that Christ provides because of His cross. So last week in the first session on what the cross does, we saw that Christ gives us through His cross new potential in reacting and acting differently in our circumstances. And the reason is we saw Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 that says uh, for me to, uh, to live is, is Christ. So uh, the, Paul says there that the life that he leads lives is really Christ living in him. And because Christ lives in me, I now have unlimited potential to handle my circumstances in a radically different, different way. So one of the first things that the cross provides is new potential. And you get that new potential through birth. Now, not your natural birth. Uh, You got all the messed up stuff through your natural birth. Every one of us came by it honestly (laughs) with regard to our sin natures. We got it from our parents. who got it from their parents who ultimately go back to our first parents. And all of us are born naturally into the world with an inclination to act and react in our circumstances in ways that produce the cactus. But we still get this potential through birth, but it's new potential through a new birth and so let me just give you a few passages with regard to that. Second Peter chapter one in verse four says that we participate in the divine nature, we participate in the divine nature second Peter one four. So what that means is we 've been given now uh, as a result of this new birth, a new nature, and we now participate in not. No longer the sin nature exclusively, but we participate in the nature of God, the divine nature. That comes through birth. Jesus told a religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, many of you might be familiar with that, but he said to this religious leader, except you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of of heaven. He says, except you are born again. Now when it says born again, it is literally born from above. Now, born again is right too because obviously we've been born and so this birth is taking place subsequent to our natural birth, but the emphasis is not the sequence as much as the source. And the source of this birth is from above. This is a a birth by God and by His Spirit so that we are given this new nature that in turn gives us this new potential. And that is why then the Bible says things like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has, has come. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, very often that is spoken of as having a new heart. Saul speaking of the same thing, a new nature, being born from above, Being a new creature in the Old Testament is often spoken of as exchanging a heart of stone, a sinful heart, for a heart of of flesh, a new heart. And in the New Testament it speaks of circumcision of the heart by God's Spirit, a radical change in, in the heart, an internal change that now results in external effects. And that's what we have then when we come to Christ and we are born from above. We have this Radically new potential because Christ lives in us. And so what is all the stuff that is, that is new? Well, I want to talk about that. And for, and for every person who has been born again, they have this, this new potential now. And people will evidence that new life at different paces, just like children do. Children that are born naturally, they are, unless there is a deformity, they will grow. But they, may grow, they will grow at different paces. And the same thing is true spiritually. We will grow. We have new spiritual DNA. You, you will grow. If you don't, do not grow, then you have not been changed. Then you do not have this new life. The evidence of this new life is the fact that we do grow, but... We grow at different paces, and as we grow, things become new. Because I have this new nature now, new things will be made evident in my life. Now, what are some of those new things? We will have new eyes to see ourselves, others, God, our circumstances differently. New eyes. We will have a a new perspective. You don't need to turn there, but... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. It speaks of the fact that the Spirit that we receive when we are born anew, born from above, that the, the Spirit causes us to now see in radically different ways. In fact, it causes us, according to verse 12, to see what God has, has given us in Christ. So not only are we born again, but we, when we are born again, born from above, we are given God's Spirit, and God's Spirit causes us to see what we now have in Christ. And as a result of these new eyes through which I can now see this, I can engage in something the Bible calls wisdom. And that passage, 1 Corinthians 2 Verses 6 through 16, those 11 verses, use the word wisdom several times. Now, what is that wisdom that I can now bring to the heat of life because I have this new nature and I have the Spirit who causes me to see things in a radically different way? What is this wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge. It is taking now what I know about myself, what I know about God, what I know about other people, and making application of it to the heat of my life my situation, my circumstances. Now, you don't have that wisdom, and I don't have that wisdom apart from Jesus. And that's why in that passage, Jesus is actually equated with wisdom. He is wisdom. And so you have got to have him, and you have him by virtue of accepting, receiving what he did on on the cross, and then all of these other benefits follow when we come to him and come to his cross. So God has has given us Christ, who is wisdom. And the Holy Spirit enables us to see uh, who we are and all it is that we have in, in Him. The Holy Spirit enables us to see that. Now, let me tell you a few things about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, John 16, verses 5 through 15, another set of 11 verses, John 16, 5 through 15. The night before Jesus is crucified, he teaches his first followers in the upper room about the Holy Spirit. He begins this teaching in chapter 13 of John, and from chapter 13 of John all the way through chapter 18, all of that is, those six chapters are one night, the night before Jesus dies. And he gathers them in the supper room. And you remember in chapter 13, he begins to wash their, their feet and to show them the kind of now radically different approach they're going to have to life as a result of their relationship with him and the giving of the Holy Spirit that he's going to tell them about in a minute. They're going to become servants, humble servants. And he demonstrates this humble service by washing the feet of his disciples. And they can't, they can't believe that the Lord himself is condescending to do this. And then in chapter 14, it starts famously this way. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Now believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You all remember that. And then Philip says, we don't know where you're going. Remember that? And Jesus says, Philip, you know the way to where I am going. And he says then, just very abruptly in verse 6, famously, John 14 and verse 6, I am the way. I am going to my Father and the way to my Father is through me. And Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what he tells them in that whole thing. I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through, through me. Well, there, tell us more. You're going to go away? And now what are we supposed to do? And okay, you're the way, and you're the truth, and you're the, and you're the life. And we're good with that, as long as you're here. But you're leaving. And then Jesus begins to comfort their hearts. Let not your heart be troubled, because I am going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he begins in chapter 14 and 15 and 16 to teach them about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry. And in chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to speak of me. And he is going to glorify me. And he's going to point to me. Now, this is just an aside, and I'll get back on track. But any movement, any ministry, any church that purports to talk about the Spirit that does not point to Jesus is not the Spirit of the living God. And there are lots of spiritual activity out there. In fact, spiritual is the cool word today, right? I'm not religious. I'm what? I'm spiritual. Cool. what does that mean you got a definition for that and god has a definition for what it means to be spiritual and to be spiritual means the spirit points to jesus and that's what he says in john chapter 16 he will glorify me and he will teach you about me and so what does that mean now for you and for me You've got all of this, this new potential because you are a new creature, because you have been born from above. And you have this spiritual DNA, and you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to do what? He's going to point you away from yourself and away from everybody else to the one who's most important, Jesus. Now, if that's all true, and it is, then do you start to see how that begins to change your behavior? Because now I have a radically new agenda. My agenda is Jesus' agenda. And the problem that we have in our sin, the negative heart that creates the cactus that we bring to the heat, the circumstances of our lives, the problem we have is that I bring to all of that my agenda. It is all about me and whether or not this thing is working for me now let 's just stop and think for a moment about that agenda that we bring to our our circumstances. Our agenda might be comfort. Our agenda in our relationships might be for this person to finally realize i 'm right. Uh, our agenda uh, might be for to 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 have a new uh, a new career a new job and my life is is, is dictated by my pursuit of that. You could literally fill in a myriad, an infinite number of things to what might be guiding your agenda. They may be, as we're going to see in a bit, good things in themselves. They may be okay things. But the problem with them is they become your driving agenda instead of Jesus being your driving agenda. And what the Holy Spirit does is He changes the agenda. The agenda is now about Jesus. He points to Jesus. If I have the Spirit, it's about bringing glory to Jesus. So now I'm in this relationship that's been going south for a long time. How does this thing get back on track? Because two people are willing to say our agenda is about Jesus, not about me being right, not about me being perceived as right, even if I'm not. So I'm willing to humble myself and I'm willing to seek forgiveness. I'm willing to work through whatever it is, even though it hurts me to do that, even though it pains me in my pride to do that because my agenda is about Jesus. Now, would you guys agree that our relationships would be radically altered if that's what people brought to them? How does how I am behaving reflect on Jesus? How does this show Jesus? How does this marriage demonstrate Christ? How does this relationship I have with these people at church demonstrate Christ that I'm, that I'm mad at, that I'm gossiping about? I'm just making that up. I'm sure it doesn't happen here, but I've heard about churches where that kind of stuff happens. So the Holy Spirit has a Christ-centered agenda. His work is to, to magnify to magnify Christ. Now, how does that affect my daily Christian living? And that's what I want us to see for the rest of our, our time together. You know, I said some of these things that are my agenda, they may be good things. So take as an example. You're coming home from work, you're tired, and you... Uh, you uh, are picturing in your mind when you get home that you are going to relax you're going to have a, a cold drink that would be a non-alcoholic cold, uh, cold drink that you, that you have when you get home you're picturing kicking your feet up turning on the uh, television because you're tired you've worked hard and you deserve it but you forgot you have children And when you get home, the children run up and hug you, and one of them gives you the newspaper, and the other one sets the recliner for you and brings you that that cold drink. (laughs) From your laughter, apparently not. That's not what happens. So what does more likely happen? The children run up to you, and they are saying, they're complaining because the other one won't let this one share the computer. You're hogging all the computer time, right? And they've got homework to do, and they want you to help with homework. And your, your spouse has also been working. Even if she's, you know, at home, you, you might not want to say, guys, what have you been doing all day? You might want to say that. You know, I never ask, I never ask a woman, uh, do you work? I always say, do you work outside the home? I asked a woman if she works one time. And that's all I remember about that exchange. <laughs> <laughs> but I forgave Kim for, for that <laughs> it's hard work, it really is, I've seen that job, I don't want it okay? so she's worked hard too and she says look I, I need some help, I wasn't able to get the place cleaned up and by, besides that I wasn't able to get dinner and your whole world is crashing in right now I mean, all you did was work all day, get in the car and you've got envisioned in your mind some peace and quiet, some comfort And you want that. And the key word is, I want that. And the question is, how much do I want it? And if I want it so much that I'm willing to sin in its absence, that thing has morphed into an idol for me. I want it more than I want God. And so I blow up at the kids. I blow up at my wife. I get in the car and go for a drive. Now, whose agenda am I pursuing with that? But if I pursue Christ's agenda, that's going to look radically different, isn't it? If when I get in the car, I recognize that I'm tired and I recognize that I would like comfort, but I also remember that I'm a servant of Jesus, which means I'm a servant of my wife and my children as well. So on the way home, instead of just envisioning all the idolatrous stuff you've got going on, all good stuff, it's just morphed into an idol because it's become too important. Instead of doing that, You're asking the Lord, you know, Lord, help me. You know the rest I need. And I trust you to provide it. And help me when I get home, whatever I find, to be able to serve like you would want me to serve. I want to pursue your agenda. I want to reflect you in the midst of of my home. You say, who does that? Christians do that. There just aren't that many Christians. Not that many people do what I just said. Just because there aren't that many Christians. But that is what Christians do. With a new agenda. So, my good things morph into idols because they are my agenda rather than God's agenda. So what do I have that's going to help me to do this? Then I said not many people do it, and that's the truth. Not many people do it. But Christian people do it. And if if we're really Christian people, we want to do it, and we're going to do it. And we have the power to do it by the grace of God. Now, where do we get this this power? We live a cross-centered life. Now, what does that cross-centered life refer to? When we talk about the cross, we're not just talking about the act of Jesus dying. The cross is used in Scripture as shorthand for the entire ministry of Jesus. And the reason that the cross is, is, is the apex of the shorthand that's used in Scripture is because the cross wouldn't mean anything if Jesus' life, perfectly righteous life, hadn't preceded it. And so the cross is the culmination now Of the perfect life that Jesus led, which made his death on our behalf acceptable to the Father. If he doesn't lead lead that sinless life, then that death is not acceptable to the Father. His death is like your death and my death. And so the cross is shorthand for his whole life, but not just his whole life, but it's shorthand for what God had planned before he came. Remember as we celebrate Christmas, dear friends, God sent his son. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but Christ has existed for all eternity. God the Son is indeed God, the eternal God. And he came to earth as a babe in Bethlehem to begin his mission on earth, but that was not the beginning of his existence. And so the cross is not only the culmination of his life on earth, it's the culmination of the plan of God in eternity past. Wow. Wow. And the Bible says he's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And that's why the cross is then shorthand for the whole ministry of Jesus and who he is. And then, of course, three days later, there's the resurrection. But the resurrection only happens. The resurrection does not happen if Jesus didn't die on the cross in an obedient death for the sins of others. In so doing, he obeyed the Father. That's why Philippians chapter 2 says he became obedient even unto death. And it is because of that, that acceptable sacrifice now, the Father looks and accredits who Jesus is and what Jesus did by raising him from the dead, Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. So the cross is shorthand for who Jesus is and everything Jesus did. When we talk then about living a cross-centered life, we don't just mean focusing on the death of Jesus. We mean all the stuff that led up to that and everything that flows out of that. So what does a life like that look like? What it does is this. It gives you a new identity. You now, as someone related to God because of Jesus, because I am united to Christ, as we saw last week, and i am united in his death when he died i died to sin with him the bible teaches if i belong to him that gives me now a radical new identity which is different than what we have now if you if, if i ask you tell me about yourself or you ask me to tell you about myself what will we normally do we'll rattle off a list of our circumstances We'll tell you our occupation. We'll tell you our family situation. We might tell you about some particular struggle that, that we have. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recent divorcee, let's say. Whatever. So you would go through those kinds of biographical kinds of things about yourself. It's all fine. It's all understandable. But a cross-centered life means there's really something, There's something more to every piece of that. I am now much more than my circumstances. And so, you may be someone who struggles with alcohol. But your identity is not, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a child of God who has a particular struggle. That's the way you identify yourself. I'm a child of God who has gone through the pain of divorce. I'm a child of God who has experienced victimization in the past. But do you see how so easily we become defined by our circumstances? And a cross-centered life says, I'm not defined by my circumstances, but rather I'm defined by my relationship to Jesus and now carrying out His agenda. And so let's consider an example. You have a guy who came to Jesus uh, five years ago. And for the first couple of years, this guy is just going gangbusters. He is reading his Bible. He's praying uh, all the time. He's, he's going to church all the time. But he gets into year three, and that starts to wane for him. By years four and five, he's hit and miss as he goes to church, not doing all this praying and, and reading of his Bible that he, he used to do. What was the deal with that? Well, this guy was not living a cross-centered life. Because the reason he was doing all of those things was so that he could be, now hear this carefully, so that he could be accepted by God rather than because he is already accepted by God. And when people are motivated in what they do by a legalistic approach, I mean, that is really in a nutshell what a legal, I've got these rules, these things I do in order for me to be accepted by God, that's what legalism is. And you've got religious people all over the place living legalistic lives, joyless, legalistic lives. Doing stuff so that God will accept them. And the gospel is this. God has accepted me, therefore I desire to do this stuff. And when it is done that way, from a cross-centered perspective, now with my new identity in Christ and my new potential in Christ, because of who I am in Him, I want to do these things. There's a joy about this person and a lasting joy at that. And so maybe you relate to what I said about this guy. You know, first couple years, I can remember when, but it hasn't been that way for me. At bottom, then... You are not joyfully carrying out those responsibilities because you are doing them for something rather than because you've already been given something. And a cross-centered life says, this is who I am, therefore, this is what I do. And so how do I get that on a regular basis? Well, the two keys are these two words, two of many words that you hear at church a lot, but we don't explain them very well, as with most terms in theology. The keys to living this cross-centered life are two, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Now I'd like to use our remaining time to talk about how that goes. Faith is this. Faith is seeing who I am in, in Christ. And it's faith... Believing, that's a synonym for faith in the Bible, believing who I am in Christ, because of the grace and mercy that I have, because of the life and the death and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, because I have all of that, and I believe that, and I see myself that way, it keeps me from despair. You see, you will be in despair if you say, you know, if you have this joyless life. And you keep trying to get on this treadmill. And you keep getting off. And it's just up and down and up and down for you. Maybe more down than up. And that's because you're not seeing yourself through the cross-centered prism set of lenses. If you do, it will take care of the despair that so many Christians live in. You've got so many professing Christians who live in defeat because of the stuff that they have struggled with man, we've got so many riches in Christ and yet you've got so many people living in despair. And faith is seeing who I really am that in turn eliminates that despair. Now, who am I really, quickly? Uh, these verses are in your notes if you take a look at Lesson 7. The first thing I am is justified. That is, I have perfect standing before God just as if I'd never sinned because the life of Jesus is applied to me and Jesus never sinned. So that's the first thing I got, and I believe that I see myself that way. So First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say this in your notes, Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, notice, the righteous one. The ju- that's the same word for just, the just one. And see, I am righteous before God because He is righteous. So in my experience, yes, I struggle with sin and I still sin. And we want to sin less. But this side of heaven, you will not be sinless. You can simply sin less. But in the meantime, I have this absolute position before God because of the righteousness of Jesus that I am justified before Him. Not because I am perfect, but because... I'm attached to Jesus who is perfect. And verse 2 says he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now notice, we have an advocate, it says, one who speaks in our defense. And so you've got this perfect person who stands in your stead before the Father and the Father sees you as perfect in your standing because of your relationship with, with him. So by faith, I see myself as as who I am in Christ. And the first thing I am is justified. Here's the second thing I am, adopted into his family. And you have this verse in your notes as well, chapter 3 of 1 John. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I just want you to notice some things about, about this passage. This verse is delighting in the fact that Christians have a Radical new relationship with God. Because we've been justified, we're now welcomed into God's family. We're adopted into His family. So God is no longer my judge. God is my Father, and I am His child. Thanks be to God. And here's what John, who wrote this, says. It says, how great is the the love the Father has lavished on us. And that verse actually starts with the word, behold, and an exclamation. Behold the love that the Father has lavished on us. He's, He's trying to get our attention, saying, stop and think about this. Do not miss this incredible truth. And then it says, how great. Now get this. That phrase, how great, is literally this. From what country is the love that the Father has lavished on us? You could translate it this way. From what planet The love that the Father has given us is out of this world. That's what John is saying. It's like nothing any human has ever known or ever done. It's the love that the Father has lavished on us. And then when he says, so that we are the children of God, and then it's just he can't take it in as he's writing it. And so John says, we are the children of God, and then adds, and that is what we are. Unbelievable. Amazing. That's who we are, justified and adopted. That's faith, seeing ourselves as we are because of the person and work of Jesus. That keeps us from despair when we struggle with sin. But then there's the second thing, and that is repentance, turning from sin. And here's what repentance does. Faith keeps us from despair. Repentance keeps us from pride. I repent of the fact that, Lord, I think I can do this on my own. That I've been pursuing this on my own and I've been pursuing this for my own agenda. I've been pursuing this to get something rather than because I've already been given everything. And so, Lord, I repent. It keeps me from pride. Now, you see an excellent example of repentance in the parable that Jesus gave of the prodigal son. And I'd like to finish our time by reminding you of that, that parable. John, or excuse me, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32. And you all remember the story. Son says to his father, uh, Father, I want this, I, w- I want my inheritance early. This is an insult to his father. It's, it's, it's really saying, You're about, you're a, your life is meaningful to me because of what you give to me. And in fact, it'd be better for me if you were dead. But since you're still hanging on, give me my inheritance early. The father does that. He goes and he he spends this in riotous living. He is friendless and he is penniless. And then the Bible says in verse 17 of that parable, Luke chapter 15, and he came to his senses. The first thing that happens when someone repents is he or she comes to their senses. They see themselves as they truly are. They, they wake up. They begin to see that the biggest problem that they have is not their circumstances, it's not the heat, it's us. They come to themselves, says the King James Version. When you wake up in some of these ways that I'm going to give you, then you know that change, repentant change is beginning. You see life as a moral drama of immense proportions. You don't blow off the so called little sins that you commit in your relationships. You take it very seriously. Jesus died for this. Because Jesus died for this, it must be important. And if it's important to Jesus, it's important to me. So you begin to see life as a drama of, a moral drama of immense proportions. You have a new. Soberness about the reality of sin, of suffering, and your need for God's grace. Momentary pleasures no longer hold your attention. Biblical truth begins to make sense as you think about your situation. The Bible begins to become personal. It's not just talking about them, it's talking about you. You begin to make connections between your heart and your behavior. You begin to see that God is a God of grace and mercy and He becomes increasingly attractive to you. That's when you know repentance, that you're coming to your senses, when those kinds of things start to happen. Here's a second element. Not just you come come to your senses, but you admit your sin. So the young man says, I will go to my father and I will ask for his forgiveness. And he rehearses what he's going to say to him and he says, Father, I know that you have no requirement to, you, to accept me back. And, but I throw myself at your, at your mercy. And so he admitted his, his sin. He did not treat God's grace lightly. He had godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow. You know, there's a difference. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry that I got caught. Right? Godly sorrow is, I have disappointed the Father. And you admit your sin fully when you see the sin beneath the sin. It's not just that I spent all this money. It's not just that I flew off the handle. It's not just that I've been irresponsible. It is all of that, but there's a reason for that that is beneath all of that. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at the Ten Commandments and we saw that Commandments 4 through 10 are all based on Commandments 1 through 3. You all remember that? that all of the verti- horizontal stuff in our relationships with other people all flows first and foremost from our relationship with God. And when I repent, I see that it's not just the thing I did and the effect it had on me and on other people. More important than that, there's something beneath that. The root of that is that I have already been adulterous spiritually as it relates to God. I have found someone or something else that is more important to me and him. That's underneath all of my sin. And then another element of true repentance is we repent of sin, but we also repent of righteousness. You say, repent of righteousness. Repent of your self-righteousness. You see, a lot of times our sin is because we compare and contrast ourselves to other people. And we have our own self-righteousness, and we bring that then to the heat of our circumstances. So we have to repent not only of our direct sin, our obvious sin, but also of our own self-righteousness. The only righteousness you have is the righteousness that Jesus gives you. And then here's the third thing that this young man did. He received his father's gracious embrace. So he came to his senses, he admitted his sin, and then he received his father's forgiveness. When you admit the depth of your sin and you repent, as this prodigal did, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit becomes increasingly attractive to you. And the false idols that you have used to topple his preeminence in your heart become increasingly faint to you. Now, how does this look for a guy who's looking for comfort when he comes home from work? I'll finish with that. Well, now, if someone has seen that for what it is, and repents, they see where their heart ought to be, and that Christ's agenda ought to be preeminent rather than their own agenda. And so you could ask yourself a series of questions. Let me give these to you and we'll be done. Ask yourself a series of questions based upon Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven. Philippians two, one through eleven. You guys know that passage? Sure. It says, in, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And then it goes on to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about him humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it tells us how Jesus saw himself and how he humbled himself for the sake of others. Now, if I'm going to have Jesus' agenda now, coming home from work, looking for that comfort, which is a good thing, but it can morph into an ultimate thing, an idol. You can say this to yourself based on Philippians 2. Comfort, you look beautiful to me right now. But when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself for me? Comfort didn't do that. Jesus did. Comfort, when did you ever enter my world to suffer on my behalf? Comfort, when did you ever shed your blood so that I could be cleansed from my sin? Comfort, when were you ever raised from the dead on my behalf? When did you ever promise to give me new life and power? Comfort, when did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to fill me in true comfort that would help me to please God even when my earthly comfort was threatened? Comfort, when did you ever promise to intercede for me to my Father in Heaven so that I could be strong in trials? When did you ever promise to come again and redeem me from the things that capture me and make me their slave? You think about just replacing your idol, whether it's comfort or whatever it is, And you replace it and you ask those kinds of questions. And then you ask yourself, who should be there? Or what should be there? And what should be there is always and only Jesus. That's a Christ-centered agenda. And the cross helps us to do that. The person and work of Jesus causes us to see ourselves as we truly are, justified and adopted, releasing us from our despair that we can't do it, And then the repentance corrects the pride that we bring to the heat of life, including our relationships. We start to do that, dear friends. Now you've got somebody with a different heart. And that's going to bring forth different fruit. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at that different fruit together. We're going to pray and we're done. We're a little bit over. I'm not going to shake anybody's hand because I think I might be getting sick and because I don't want to get shot for going five minutes over. So, But really, wouldn't it be cool if we just stopped playing Christian? Wouldn't it be great if we really lived that way? And if we're honest many of us have situations, circumstances, relationships that haven't changed in years. Because we're not living a cross-centered life. And because we're not living a cross-centered life, those relationships don't reflect Jesus. So whose agenda are you going to live for this week? We live for our own. Replace comfort. Replace being right. Replace your pride. Replace whatever that idol is with Jesus. Start that this week. Let's begin to see new fruit this week and then let's discuss that next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the convicting work of your Holy Spirit because you are a jealous God. You are a God who knows that you desire and you deserve our full attention, our full allegiance. And you will not stand idly by as we are drawn away to lesser things. And so in your righteous jealousy, you chase your people and you bring our hearts back to you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so that we can love who is most important, you. Lord, my heart drifts. Every person here suffers from the tendency to drift away from you. And so, Lord, thank you for this session to draw us back. Help us this afternoon to begin the process of seeing through new eyes who we are in Christ. Rescue us, Lord, from the despair that it will never change then. And then, Lord, help us to truly repent. Lord, save us from our pride that we can do this, that we've been living in self-righteousness as if we can take this on ourselves and make the changes that are needed. Oh, Lord, we so desperately need your Spirit. We so desperately need you every moment of every day. Lord, there are undoubtedly, I don't know, but in, this, in a room this size, there are undoubtedly people who are sowing seeds of disaster for themselves right now. There are some here, Lord, and you know all about it, but undoubtedly there are some here feeling the effects of the lack of repentance that they have pursued for so long. Lord, we have homes represented that are simply houses and not homes. Places where people share space but not their lives. Oh, Lord Jesus. Show yourself strong in these relationships. Melt hearts by your love and kindness. And may we replace our idols with you. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.